following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again, Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're our guest today. Many of you will know that we've been working our way through a series looking at the Gospel of Mark from the very beginning of this year. And each week, what we've done is we've opened the Gospel of Mark and looked at this account of Christ's life and of his ministry in hopes of seeing who Jesus really is and what he came to do in our lives and in this world. This morning, we're going to finish up this series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at the climax of the entire book. I wonder if you had a chance to talk with one of your friends or neighbors, maybe one who didn't really attend church or even claim to be a Christian, and ask them what the most important thing about Christianity is, I wonder what they'd say. They'd likely say something about the cross if I had to bet. When people think about Christianity, they often think about the crucifixion of Jesus as the most important part. But that's not necessarily entirely true. While the crucifixion of Jesus and his substitutionary atonement on our behalf is crucial for Christianity, it would all mean nothing if the resurrection did not happen. The resurrection of Jesus is the event that Christianity is built upon. If it didn't happen, we might as well pack up and spend our Sunday mornings on something more fun and more useful. But if it did happen, then it changes everything. This past week, I came across a set of pictures of people doing very normal, everyday activities while something extraordinary and phenomenal was happening just behind them. I wonder if you've ever seen these kinds of pictures. They grab your attention because the people who are engaged in everyday activities in the pictures don't seem to be aware of the extraordinary, phenomenal events that are happening in the same picture that they're in. There's one picture of a group of golfers. Maybe you've seen it on the internet. Not sure how truthful it is, but I saw it with my own eyes. Finishing a hole, they're putting on the green while just behind them, the entire mountain range is engulfed in a blazing fire. They're playing golf with a forest fire in the background, likely somewhere in California or out west. There's another picture of a man mowing his backyard while just in the distance over the fence, he can't see it. There's a massive tornado moving across the landscape. In these pictures, they grab your attention because people are doing the most simple mundane activities against the backdrop that screams for your attention. Normal life against the backdrop of something extraordinary and phenomenal. And I think that's a good picture for us this morning as we consider the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we consider an event that's extraordinary and phenomenal, and it's happening in the background of our normal mundane lives. The resurrection, this extraordinary phenomenal event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the relatively short account that we find in the Gospel of Mark. You follow along as I read the end of Mark 15 and then the beginning of Mark 16. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Mark 14, verse 42 says this. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted Christ's corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. A few months ago, I got the chance to spend some time with a friend of mine who is a pastor of a large church in Nashville, Tennessee in our denomination. And in the course of our time together, he talked about how he oftentimes gets email from random people through their church website and they email asking about where the church stands on certain social and political issues. He said that the church administrator will actually forward these emails along to him. And normally, especially in our current cultural moment, the person on the other end is asking what the church believes about same-sex marriage, asking what the church believes about homosexuality. Well, as you might imagine, I was eager to hear how my friend and pastor responds to these email questions that he gets. And I was intrigued by how he thinks about these emails. He said this, I never respond. It would be pointless because before we can talk about the issues that they want addressed, there are deeper, more central issues that need to be addressed first. They're asking a question that shouldn't be asked until step five or six of the relationship. The first step that needs to be addressed is the question of who do you believe Jesus to be? As you read the Gospels, who do you understand or what do you understand of the person and work of Christ? If we're not settled on that issue, he says, first, then we're not going to find much agreement when it comes to the social or political hot-button issues of the day. Well, in that conversation, my friend clarified something that I hadn't put words to, especially when wanting to address people's questions and concerns about the church, and that it's you've got to start at the beginning. You've got to start with Jesus and who you believe him to be and what you believe he came to do. I wonder who you think Jesus is this morning. It's an important question. 
A question that everyone seemingly has an answer for, who is Jesus? One person's answer that I like a lot comes from Bono, the lead singer of U2. There was a biography written on Bono a few years back entitled Bono in Conversation. And the author, in the midst of talking about Christianity with Bono, who claims to be a follower of Jesus, asks him this. He says, Christ has his rank among the great thinkers of the world, but the Son of God, isn't that a little bit far-fetched? And then Bono responds, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look at the secular response to the Christ story. It always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ does not allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Here, Bono kind of sounds a little bit like C.S. Lewis as he continues. Christ says, no, I'm not saying that I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locust and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from the creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. And at this point, everyone stares at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. And Bono continues, I mean, we're talking a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was like some of the people we've been talking about earlier. This man was strapping himself to a bomb, and that bomb had the inscription, King of the Jews. And they were putting him on the cross, and he was going, okay, martyrdom. Here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that seems far-fetched. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? It may be the most important question you ever answer. It's at least a question that deserves a thoughtful response. Well, this is the day where the church around the world celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. According to the Bible, the resurrection is the main event in the life of Jesus. It's the foundation upon which Christianity is based. If the resurrection did happen, then it does change everything. And if it didn't happen, then we might as well go home. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, says it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul actually expressed a similar sentiment in his letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, we are of all people to be most pitied. In other words, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, 
then we might as well pack it up, stop wasting our time and our energy and our money. But if Jesus had been raised, if he has been raised, if it's true, then everything is changed and what we're doing in planting this new church might be the most important thing you ever do in your entire life. It's through the resurrection that Jesus' entire life and teaching is validated. If Christ rose from the grave, then what he teaches is true. He is Savior. He is King. And so with that in mind, this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection from two perspectives, hopefully satisfying both kind of people here this morning, which is hard to do on an Easter. We're going to look at the resurrection from the perspectives of the head and the heart. The head and the heart. In other words, we're going to look at some of the intellectual reasons for why you should believe the resurrection happened. And then we're going to spend just a few minutes, this isn't going to be exhaustive, okay? A few minutes talking about how the resurrection is meant to shape our hearts. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the head. It's important to understand that Christianity is not a religion that's based on warm feelings and even giant leaps of faith. At its core, Christianity is a religion that is rooted in events that happened in history in real time and in real space. So to satisfy our intellectual curiosity, I want to point out just a few reasons why you should at least be semi-confident that a historical resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Why I am confident. And I don't think it needs to be said that these reasons, like I mentioned, aren't exhaustive. But my hope is to put some compelling historical reasons in your mind for why you would believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You can always dig deeper if interested. I can point you in the right direction. First, you see remarkably early eyewitness accounts of the resurrection in Scripture. The first accounts of the empty tomb are found in the letters of Paul as he writes to the Greek-speaking world in that day and age. And there are a wide range of historians that agree that these writings were written just 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. This is a remarkably short time by ancient standards for recording a historical event. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 6, Paul writes this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Jesus actually appeared to people after His resurrection for 40 days. It was not a secret event. And Paul lists names of people who saw him, kind of like we might list footnotes in an academic paper, so that people could go and check his sources. They could talk with these eyewitnesses. They could get the story for themselves if they wanted to. There was nothing that Paul was trying to hide when it came to the resurrection. In fact, he was trying to make the resurrected appearance of Jesus as transparent as he possibly could. Paul never would have made such a statement if the eyewitnesses didn't exist. He would have been exposed pretty quickly for a liar and a fraud, if that was the case. Second, the accounts of the resurrection in the Bible, you likely have heard this, are too problematic to be a fabrication. Taken as an example, in each of the gospel accounts, we see that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. 
Now, in the first century Greco-Roman world and Jewish world, women had very low social status, unlike today. Their testimony wasn't admissible in courts of law. There was no possible advantage. In fact, it was disadvantageous for the church to have the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection be women. It would have undermined the credibility of their entire story, their entire testimony. The only possible explanation for why women are depicted as they are in our passage as meeting the resurrected Jesus first is that it's actually how it happened. It's the simple truth. There would have been enormous pressure for the early leaders of the Christian movement and message to remove the women from the accounts, but they didn't do it because they were primarily concerned with historical truth. Third, everyone would have been able to verify that the tomb was empty. We see in our passage that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the Jewish council, someone who had access to Pilate, he would have been a big deal in that day and age, requested the body of Jesus and buried it in his own tomb. Now, this man would have been well-known. The location of his tomb would have likely been common knowledge. Critics could have ended this uprising pretty quickly by producing the body of Christ, by going to the tomb. And on top of this, there's no competing burial story out there for Jesus. There's only one, the one that we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The powers of the day didn't even try to produce an alternative account. Fourth, the disciples suddenly and sincerely became to believe that Jesus had risen from death despite the fact that everything inside them would have pushed against that being true. We tend to think uh, that the followers of Jesus in the first century were more naive than us that they didn't have science. They were gullible and immediately accepted the resurrection, but that's just not true. You see that it's very hard for them to accept this fact as you read the pages of the Gospels. Resurrection would have been completely inconceivable for them, just like it is for us. N.T. Wright, a historian from St. Andrews University, talks about the fact that there were many messianic movements in the first century. You might not have known that. Many folks came and claimed to be the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. And they were uh, would-be Messiahs who were executed by the Roman government, much like Jesus of Nazareth was. And he writes this, In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. They could give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. Lastly, How do you explain the fact that hundreds of Jews began worshiping Jesus literally overnight? These Jews were a group of people who for hundreds of years believed in a single transcendent personal God, and it was absolutely blasphemous for them to propose that any human being should be worshiped. Yet that's exactly what happened. On top of that, nearly all the apostles and early Christian leaders died for their faith, often in gruesome ways. And it's hard to believe that this kind of self-sacrifice would be done to support what they knew to be a hoax. I love how Pascal put it when he said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. 
Nothing in history can be proven in the way that we can prove something in a laboratory, obviously. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact that is much more fully attested to than most other events in ancient history that we simply take for granted. And when it comes to the resurrection, it's at the heart of Christianity, and you shouldn't have to check your brain at the door. It happened in real time, in real space, and it's important to look at the evidence, to weigh it out, and to embrace your faith with reason and a sense of historical certainty. Now, We've touched on just a few of the historical reasons for believing the resurrection. Let's spend our last few minutes talking about why we need the resurrection personally. You know as well as I do that this world can often be characterized with the words darkness and death. In both big and small ways, we experience it. We get tastes of death and darkness in our relationships when people hurt us, when people leave us, when people say things about us that mark us for the rest of our lives, we get tastes of death and darkness in this world in our moral fabric. When we do things that we wish we could stop, when we want to stop the control and the lust and the anger and the manipulation, but we constantly find ourselves falling back into the same temptations over and over again, death and darkness, small tastes. We get tastes of death and darkness in our bodies when they don't work properly. When we experience sickness and devastating health news, maybe with us or with those that we love. We see it all around us. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Oftentimes what we see in this world and in our lives seems pretty hopeless. Leo Tolstoy touched on this feeling when he said this, My question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? It's a question you and I don't normally think about. A question that it's easy to ignore with the busyness of our lives, with everything happening that attracts our attention, but a question that everyone will eventually have to face. It's a question that can haunt us. It's a question that is answered with the hope of the resurrection, we believe. If the resurrection happened, then that means death and darkness will not have the last word. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then that means life is on offer for you and what you do in this world actually matters. I have a pastor friend and his Easter sermons, he always tells his skeptical secular friends that are in the audience that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Even if you can't believe in it, you should want it to be true. It's because the resurrection gives us a reason to hope like no other thing possibly can. It's been said that a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but a person can't live four seconds without hope. Hope is necessary for survival. It's what keeps us moving on from one day to the next. It's what gives our lives meaning. Without hope, we are left with a meaningless world. 
It's what popular atheist Richard Dawkins describes when he says this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If the resurrection did not happen, then that's what we have. At least Dawkins is intellectually honest. He follows his belief to their logical conclusions. It's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're without hope. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is what Paul says. We should be at brunch right now, enjoying things, enjoying ourselves. You and I need hope to survive and the resurrection, the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus provides hope unlike anything else out there. Look, in the resurrection, we see that though we live in a world often characterized by death and darkness, though we live in a world that oftentimes feels like Good Friday, where we experience darkness and death, where things do not turn out the way that we had expected them to turn out, we know that Easter is coming. We know that God is going to be the one that has the last word in our lives and in this world. In the resurrection, we see that he's capable of making all things new of righting all wrongs, of bringing joy out of sadness, of bringing resurrection from death. Some of you will know the name Joni Erickson Tata. She was in a diving accident when she was 17 years old, and ever since then, she's been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And through her life, obviously, she's had lots of challenges and disappointments and struggles because of her condition. She's also a believer in Jesus. And as she thinks about how difficult her life has been, she also keeps in mind the resurrection. And she says this, I with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? I think we can echo Tata's hope here. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is sin riddled like me? Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who has experienced such deep loss like me? Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who has been abandoned, who has been sick, who has been hurt, who has been disappointed, who has been mistreated, who has been grief-stricken like me? The resurrection reminds us that God has not given up on you. He has not given up on this world. It reminds us that sin and death will not have the last word. Because of the resurrection, we know that God is going to make all things new. Because of the resurrection, we know that God will bring life out of darkness and death. Because of the resurrection, we know that the worst thing is never the last thing. And that is hope for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you came and you lived a perfect life on our behalf. 
You died a death that satisfied God's wrath and judgment so that we might be reconciled to him. And you were raised on the third day so that you might seal that salvation to your people so that sin and death and hell might fully and finally be defeated. And that is what we're celebrating this morning. We pray that you would apply those truths deep to our hearts. that We might live out of those truths with great joy as we follow you, our resurrected King. Amen.